us this week over um, what happened over issue one, really took to heart what she said and practiced some of the things that she recommended in the prayer room, which was super helpful. Um, today, we're going to continue with the life of David, and it's about having courage and resolve. And this wasn't, um, you know, concocted by our leadership team plan. It just so happened to overlap just this season. I think it's what the Holy Spirit's speaking to us. So if you can go to the first slide there. Okay, so a quick review. Um, why we're studying the life of David is because Isaiah 55, chapter 4, God actually says, I've given him, David, as a witness and a model for the people. This is how we are to carry our hearts. And it's such a beautiful picture because God actually shows us through the life of David how to carry our hearts in times of elevation and in times of demotion, in times of, of ease and in times of trial. Like how do you uh, pursue being a person after God's own heart in those seasons? Um, so uh, these are the seasons of David's life, Bethlehem, uh, Gibeah, Adullam, Hebron, and Judah. Right now we're in the Adullam season. Um, Oh, thank you. <laughs> Adullam season. No B. Um, okay, so um, I was just remarking with uh, some people this week. I was like, after, especially after issue one failed, I was like, man, like, I think in all of my life, globally, like, locally, like, just humanity-wise, this has been the worst month, like, possible. Um, I've never experienced a month like this. I don't think any of us have in our lifetime, where um, from Israel going to war, to you know shaking within the local church, to our own state um, choosing death over life. Like, these things so, can weigh so heavily on us. And it's like, what is happening? You know, like, I mean, if you had told me two months ago that this is gonna happen, I would have been like, that's crazy. It's been a nice summer. But, <laughs> Like, how could it happen so quickly, so suddenly, that all these um, contractions, if you will, and Jesus does promise us that there's going to be birth pains, and that I was thinking and just meditating, like, man, like, this is just the beginning contractions? Like, man, what is coming down the pike? And is my heart even ready for it? And I would say it's probably not. Like, it's probably not ready. Like, if you were to, to put... 2023 me and, and, and just like transport me to 2040, like whatever is happening in the world at that point, like 2023 year old me probably couldn't handle it, you know, but for, but by the grace of God, right? Like he is, and I love that Jesus actually calls it, um, you know, life, uh, birth pains and that it contracts, contracts and then it eases up and then contracts how to, like, there's an invitation in the contraction to, hey, get ready. Hey, realign your life purposes and your priorities. Hey, like, cultivate oil. And, like, that he gives us that patient grace, that the wave after wave, and he doesn't do it all at once, for the sake of his elect. Like, I think it's the mercy of God. But as a church and as a congregation, we got to live in the reality and, and not in the happy American bubble of like, hey, it is actually, biblically speaking, going to um, 
potentially, pathetically, get worse, right? We have to live in the reality of that. And so if you could go to the next slide here, like just a, a few passages and things that we're recognizing is that God is going to shake and he has been and is going to continue to shake everything that can be shaken. And some Bible passages, uh, Daniel 11.35 says, some of those who have insight will fall. Isn't that interesting? He's like, some of you guys who actually have really great theology, who know your Bible super well, well, will fall, right? In order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end, because it is still to come at the point of time. Like, there is a point to the shaking. Like, God doesn't shake just because he's, you know, having a muscle itch contraction that he just wants to shake. He actually has a purpose for all this shaking. It's to refine, to cure, uh, purge, and to make pure. Daniel 12.10 says, Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. There's a promise that some of us, not maybe not all of us, maybe not even the majority of us, but some of us will understand what God's doing in these last days. It's unto purging, purifying, and refining. <laughs> this week, I've been like sending Joseph all these random like Instagram reels. That doesn't surprise Joseph, but apparently surprised me because it was all these Instagram reels of these mega churches who are like um, singing like Beyonce songs for worship, you know, or like calling God a her, or like um, there's one where like they had this like whole reenactment of Jesus and said Jesus was. Um, Iron Man, Avengers, and like, it was just like, I was like, Joseph, have you seen this? And Joseph was like, have you not seen this? And I was like, no, I haven't seen this. And it was like this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, like we, um, not just big mega churches, really, like, obviously that kind of stuff needs to be refined first and made pure. But even here, like in FHL, like God, like maybe, you know, we're not putting a musical of Loki and, um, you know, and trying to replicate the, the crucifixion through that storyline. But internally, like, what are our hearts meditating and entertained by the most? Like, what do we, um, what do we, like, circle our lives around, you know? God has his purposes for these shakings, to remind big mega churches that we, or big, like, even, like, liberal churches that we can point to and say, hey, like, you have compromised. Like, but also to our own hearts, the compromise of our own hearts. And we feel that with every contraction and every weakness that, man, our roots need to go down deeper. Man, I need more of you, Jesus, Amen. with the focus of my heart. Um, next slide, please. Uh, Malachi 3.24. But who can endure the day of his coming? I mean, that, that question has never been more stark in my mind than this month. Like, who can stand? Who can endure this? Right? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may be present to the Lord, so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And here we capture um, the dream of God's heart 
the reason why he's willing to allow so many atrocities in one given month, and he will continue to do it, is that he has a vision that we may present to him often in righteousness. Like he has a great desire in his heart that his bride, his church, would offer him offerings in righteousness. Right? He has a zeal for it. Um, so in the midst of all this shaking, like recognizing what God is doing, but then also looking at the life of David and saying, how then shall we live? How then should we position our hearts? And how in the midst of all this, when there's so much fear and despair and discouragement, how do we get courage and resolve in the Lord? How do we not succumb to it? So let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel chapter 23 together. Go ahead and turn your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 23. And it's a short chapter, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. And give you guys a moment to get to that passage in your Bibles. Can you go to the next slide, Jessica? Next slide. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, David in Keilah and Ziph. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go against Keilah or go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Um, then David inquired of the Lord again. And the reason why they're scared even more is that if they go to Keilah, they're actually boxing themselves in uh, for a, a greater attack by Saul. So David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise and go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Then Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled with David from to Keilah, and he fled to David to Keilah, and he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in a stronghold in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day 
but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and, you, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hekelah, which is south of Zebulun? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go and make more sure, and make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and he has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. Be therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah, to the south of Jesimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon, Saul on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger said to Saul, came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Amen. That's an intense life. Okay. Um, so, I'm just putting a little timer here for myself. Um, so, let's talk about context here in this passage. Before David even goes to Keilah and rescues them from the Philistines, David, you know, this whole passage, if you didn't read what was before it, you would have thought, oh, David's feeling great. Like, David's doing good. But actually, the passages before that actually indicate that David was going through an emotionally rough season. I mean, one of his low lows. Um, if you remember, he had just came out of Gath, so he was wrestling with a huge amount of fear in Gath. It actually says in Scripture that David was afraid. And then because he was afraid, he started to pretend like he was insane, uh, drooling down his beard, getting away from the king of Gath, right? Like, that's some intense, like, um, anxiety for you to, to, to throw yourself into that kind of situation. Um, so he's wrestling with great fear. He's wrestling with great shame and grief because the entire priesthood has been wiped out because he lied. Um, he's wrestling with great despair and Abdullam, overwhelming pressures in his life. If you remember, while he's in his caves of Abdullam, he's wrestling with great fear in that he needs to, first of all, like his family is in trouble, so he needs to get rid of his family and get them to a safe spot. Then, while he's wrestling with the despair that his family has just lost their homes and their jobs, um, all these people, not quality men, but men who are in debt, embittered, right, 
distress, bitter in soul. I mean, as if David himself, like wrestling with fear, distress, and emotions, gets a host of men who are also wrestling with this stuff under his care, right? Um, and so this is the context in which David walks into the chapter that we just read about. Um, in fact, in Psalm 142, David actually, while he's in the caves of Adullam, he writes this psalm. And if you read it, it actually says, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> like, like David actually says, I'm overwhelmed. Nobody understands or cares about me. I feel very low right now. He actually says that. I feel low. And my soul is imprisoned. <laughs> like, that's how emotionally, internally he's feeling as he goes into this next chapter. Um, but what's interesting is that even in the midst of this, God calls him a man after his own heart. Like, we always think of people after God's own heart as they're so strong and cruise control on high altitude, right? Like, but actually, in the midst of despair, fear, and when everything is going against us, like, God says, you have an opportunity to be after my heart in the deep, dark valley of life. And it's just as beautiful to God, just as precious to him as any other time, if not maybe even more, because it is a valley. Uh, I, I don't have time to read all 142, but you can look at it and you can see how he, <laughs> he really is going through despair. Um, like, it's important for us when we find ourselves in the narrative of the valley um, to understand what God is doing and why he's doing it. Um, David, in this context, God is raising him up to be a king. Not just any king, not a king for the people, but he actually says in scripture, I'm going to raise up a man for myself. Like, literally, God is saying, you people elected someone like Saul. You guys wanted someone like Saul. Now it's my turn. I'm raising up a king for myself. Right? And so even in the midst of all this, these highs and lows we see in David's life, God is actually training him to be a king for himself, a king after God's own heart. Um, and so when we look at David's life, like, how does God train a king befitting for power in his kingdom? How does he train us? Like, in the midst of seeing wars and rumors of wars and disappointments and, like, issue one, like, we have to recognize this is not the final chapter. This is just dress rehearsals. Our life, our 70 years here, simply a dress rehearsal for something much more real, much bigger in the days to come. Let's not lose ourselves in the narrative of the dress rehearsal, right? We are being trained, we are being refined and purified unto the actual day when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. You know, um, I'll give you guys a story here. Um, in Korea, maybe like the top like companies are all run pretty much by like 20 families. 
right, who have like a lot of power. And they're like the royalty of Korea. The highest one of that is uh, Samsung, right? And so the Samsung family is like the elite elite of the family. <laughs> My mom's gonna fact check this. <laughs> but so um, Samsung royalty, right? So the the head of Samsung, he had uh, four kids, and these four kids, and this is true with I think a lot of the, the quote unquote royal family of Korea. They don't they try to get their kids to be as um, in the back, like without any like notice and under the radar as possible. When they go to school, they tell their kids, don't tell anyone you're Samsung. You know, like when they, when they rise up and go into the ranks of school, they try to get them to be as common person as possible. And so like one of the daughters, um, she just went up in school, regular, like a regular kid, and she went to MIT. Nobody knew she was a Samsung heiress, like a Samsung princess. You know, she got a degree in MIT, and then when she came back to Korea, her father started her in the company, but where? As the lowest intern, right? Like, not just a, a great division, just a random, like, kind of low-end division. She starts as an intern, and for five, I think it's like four or five years, she just worked in kind of this obscurity where people in the department didn't even know <laughs> who she was, right? Like, she just worked giving people coffee, you know, running stupid errands, like, and slowly she moved up the rank, and finally when her dad thought that, okay, she's developed the skill and the character to be a CEO, then people started noticing that she showed up in the board meetings, <laughs> you know, and all these things, and like, in public, he started to hold her hand, whereas never he would have before, you know. Anyway, I say that um, to kind of point to a principle that, that in good fathering, and, and you can argue you know, tons of things about the royal family of Korea, but I'm saying in that particular area, that God actually puts his sons and daughters in pressure situations, in situations that, that required a development of, of humility and faithfulness and all the attributes that he thinks are kingly qualities, worthy of kingship and queenship in the days to come. He puts us in those situations for a kingdom to come. It's important for us to understand that pressure is the way that God raises up kings. It's important for us to understand, and it was important for David to understand that, that we can be a man and woman after God's heart in the midst of wrestling with fear, shame, grief, and despair. In fact, that's the whole curriculum that God would put us in context of fear and despair and, and, and that there's actually a correct way to respond in the midst of those things. It's the way that God change, trains his kings. And so looking at David, like in the midst of that, and in the days to come when there's more contractions and more crazy things that happen in the world, like what then is the correct response for a king and the queen of the, of the kingdom to come? How are we to act? Let's, so looking at this passage, go to the next slide. David's external courage and resolve. Like what did he actually do in the midst of all his wrestlings internally? One, he makes no excuse for the flesh. You see that in David. He trusts, obeys, and serves God despite his emotions. 
I love that song that we just sang. Um, I won't be. I won't bow to idols, but I won't be formed by feelings. Thank you. I was looking for the F word. I was like, F is something. So, like, <laughs> I won't be formed by feelings, right? Like, he actually gives no excuse to the flesh. He doesn't follow his emotions. He could have. He could have made excuses that I would argue in this American day and age, we would have been like, that's reasonable, David. You go ahead then. Like, he could have said, guys, I had a hard few months. I am just not going to fight the Philistines right now. Like, it's been rough. Just lost my family. His family fortune's gone. Like, just my few, I just need a little me time, a little TLC, right? Like, he could have said that. I need a self-care day, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, <laughs> we sometimes do it. We do it even just for stuff like, Beyond just like even our jobs, like we do that in church sometimes. They're like, I'm not coming today because I need a self-care day. Like he could have, but he didn't, right? He didn't say I had a, a few hard months. Give, I need me time. He could have said, you know, my friends don't really want to do it. Like he could have been like, you know what? I need the emotional support and like everybody else, like all my buddies to kind of like raw me on, but since I don't have that, just, you know, they're afraid, gotta chill out a bit. Like he didn't do that. One of the bigger arguments that he could have argued would be like, that's not my responsibility. Technically he was correct. It wasn't his responsibility. It was Saul's. It was King Saul's job to protect that citadel from the Philistines, but Saul was too preoccupied in his insecurity of killing David that he didn't care that an army of Philistines was coming. David did care. David cared not because he's a humanitarian. David cared because those are God's people. It's the name of the Lord at stake. It's his people. David cared for the things of God. He cared for God's people. Even though it's not my responsibility, I will do it. Even though I feel like I'm at the worst level of my life right now, I am beaten down. But because it's God's people, because I love him, like I will do what is not even my responsibility to do. When I'm not even in the headspace to do it. Simply because I love the Lord. That's a man after God's own heart. Right? So, he makes no excuse for his flesh. I'll go back. Um, he cares for God's people. And uh, he cares for God's people in the midst of despair and depression. And, and actually, he finds healing in the midst of worship and caring for God's people. Amen. The most selfless people are the happiest people. Amen. Selfless in the Lord, I would say because that's the only way you really can be selfless. But in the midst of our despair and depression, God actually asks us to engage instead of drawing back, instead of licking our wounds and navel-gazing and hiding and forgetting others. Like God actually, time and time again, you see it in Scripture, like when we are starting to implode because of the emotions inside of us, God actually says, hey, care for my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Don't think about yourself so much right now. Like, take care of others. Amen. Um, I remember, like, when I was in college, 
has gone going through a rough time and um, like being in the dorms, being in whatever, thinking about my life every day, uh, just kind of like feeling really heavy. And my mom actually like uprooted me out of uh, college that summer for summer break and she took me to China uh, to, to serve orphans <laughs> with her. Like she didn't just like kick me in a boot camp somewhere and somebody else deal with her. My mom took me by the hand, took me to China, the, the west part of China in um, like the, the Vuni Hills of like China. Guizhou. Guizhou, thank you. I didn't want to <laughs> target a specific people and call them boonies, but thanks mom. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, no running water sort of place. Like, and so my mom uh, up in the mountains, like we took care of orphans and I like, it changed my life. Like it like took me out of this like cycle of like, just thinking about myself, my future, my life, and put me into caring mode for God's sheep. And in the midst of that, I can testify to what David felt, which is healing from my own heart. You know, um, like, that's why it's so important that God says, do not forsake the assembly of believers. It's not just so because you are needing them to preach to you. Like, it's actually more important that we actually care for one another and we think about one another and we pray for one another because it, it wars against the flesh, natural course of narcissism in our life. Hey, do not forsake the assembly of believers. I noticed that across the board. Like, noticing even in, like, things like people like MKs seem to be happier than PKs, missionary kids, you know, versus pastor's kids, like people who are in the mission field who have to take care of people. Like they just tend to turn out better. I even noticed that with like, you know, farm kids who even though they want to sleep in, the, the cow will die if they don't go feed them and take care, you know, like they have to go care for the things that their parents have entrusted them to. Like there is such a fatherly wisdom of the Lord to say, hey, in the midst of our depression and anxiety and fear, don't stay there. Take care of God's people, right? And that's why we see even that those who wrestle most with, with all those symptoms of fear, anxiety, and depression often tend to be very wealthy kids. Tend to be, you know, and not that it's guaranteed that if you're wealthy, but it's not about whether you have money or not. It's about whether you care. Whether you will give in to that selfish narcissism and, and tendency of us, man, or do as what David did and say, even though it's not my responsibility and I'm not feeling great today, I will care for the things of the Lord. Right? Um, are we challenged with fear, shame, or despair? The Lord's prescription is to increase loving him and loving man. Aggressively worship. Aggressively praise. Aggressively give thanks aggressively orient our eyes on his faithful love that endures forever. Don't get overly introspective, but arise, attack, and do the work of the Lord. Right? This is actually one of the reasons why we're making a huge push for the prayer room. Like, it's a context. It's a, it's a beautiful place where we can knit ourselves that no matter what seasons come and what seasons are going to come, that we get to... to Sit before the Lord and worship him. Let me tell you, like, after issue one um, passed, like, everyone, like, everyone else, my heart just went, 
right? Uh, especially that night, like, or in the morning, just seeing all the news, like it passed, it passed, and just recognizing that entire generations of people will be wiped out. Like, um, but that morning at 6 a.m., I came in here, like, and for two hours with the, the body of Christ, we worshiped. We worshiped, we prayed for the ending of abortion, and we loved God and we declared your faithful love endures for all generations. Like, and there was something about doing that that lifted my heart into the hope of Christ, that postured me rightly to remember that he is good above all our circumstances. Like, and how much we need that today. Like, giving thanks to the Lord. This is why I, we always tell our people, like, open your mouths, thank the Lord. Like, thank the Lord. Don't just, like, internally be like, I'm grateful. But actually, like, in song, in words, in prayer, thank him. Why? Because today, when we thank him, it orients, it roots, it, it fortifies our understanding of who he is. So that when future waves of trials and tribulations comes, we do not question. <coughs> we don't doubt his goodness. Because we've thanked him so much. We've praised him so much. We are solid in that God does not change and his character is good. That when the world and circumstances cause us to try to question that, we say, uh-uh. I spent way too many hours praising him and sitting in his goodness to, to doubt about the goodness of God. No. So you see that in David. You see that every throughout his entire psalm. He'll be like, bad stuff is happening. Pretty much every psalm is David's like, bad stuff is happening. Super bad. <laughs> like, but the goodness of God. Have you noticed that? Like everything. Terrible, terrible, terrible. But the goodness of God endures. But he is faithful. But he is my shelter. But I hide under the shadow of his. His name is a strong tower. The righteous run. Like it is so fortified. Why? Because he learned that as a shepherd boy. He learned that. Worship and praise lifestyle that carried him through every season. Well, God continues to prepare David. Next slide. And if I were God, I would be like, David, you need a little bit of a break. Let's back up your high intensity. But actually, God then turns it up. <laughs> Saul's small hunting power now becomes a 3,000-person army hunting him. Doeg, who is the guy who um, betrayed David to try to get uh, favors and elevation from Saul, now Doeg is replaced by an entire region of Zephites who went to Gilba to ask Saul for favors if they would turn over David. It's the same spirit, just much more intense, right? And at least J David, before in the last few chapters, had Jonathan's like faithful loyalty to comfort him. But now he has the disloyalty of Keilah, the entire citadel that he just rescued from the Philistines, who are like, thank you, David, now we're going to turn you over to Saul. Yeah. Right? Like, David is being prepared for kingship because what God is training David to do is saying, will you love me when you're elevated Will you love me when you're oppressed? Will, you, will, will I still be your one thing in good days and in bad days? Or how about even worse days? 
Will I still be your one thing when it's easy? And how about when it's costly? And that's how God is training up kings. He gives a little elevation. He gives a little hardship. He sees how our heart reacts. Are we still, is he still our one thing? He turns the fire up. He pulls it back a little bit. Like, how do we react? Is he still our one thing? He's raising up kings and queens after his own heart for himself that we would offer to him offerings in righteousness, in right, with a right heart. Um, go ahead and turn to Psalm 54. kind of end with this chapter but we talked about David's kind of external practice of courage that he um, didn't give excuses for his flesh and he still take, took care of God's people but internally how did God how did David process all this betrayal let's go ahead and read it Psalm 54 and actually this psalm tells us that David wrote this in the midst of him being um, betrayed by the Ziphites. It says, To the course master with string instruments, the mascal of David when the Zephites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Okay, so if I knew like an entire region of people were going to betray me and that 3,000 of Saul's army was going to come after me, the last thing I would do is probably pick up a harp and write a song. <laughs> okay. But David picked up a harp and wrote a song in the midst of this. I mean, this is his priority, guys. And that actually should be our priority. Like when things are falling apart, run to the secret place. Run to the place of the prayer and worship him. Right? Oh, God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. He appeals not to his own character. God, I did good. Help me. I've been following you. Help, help me. He actually appeals to God's name. He says, God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. He's inviting the name of God into the picture. He's inviting God's character, his power, his personality, his attributes. He's inviting God into this picture. Vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to my words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. This is so important here. David recognizes that it's not primarily about David. It's not about people not liking David, betraying David, treating David incorrectly. It's about that the fact that they have not set God before them. Right? We see that even in the crazy protests against Israel to the, the passing of issue one, the, the bigger issue is not that they don't get it about politics and, and all this stuff. There's so many arguments and logics going on out there. The issue is that they do not set God before their eyes. Right? David identifies here the very root of the issue. We need to sit before God. Um, Verse 4, behold, he is my helper. 
God is my helper. He is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness and put an end to them. Like God, like David actually trusts in the Lord, recognizing that it's God who will, who will take care of him. It's God's responsibility to do that. Verse 6, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemy. David sets his heart to praise instead of yielding to condemnation, fear, or complaint. He actually says in verse 6, for it is good. It is good for us in all the things that are about to come down the pike between now and 2040, 2050, whatever, whatever may come, it is good for us. It is good for our own souls to continually praise him day and night. To reinforce our understanding of who God is by prayer and worship so that in the future trials and tribulations, we do not question his faithfulness. Let's go into a time of prayer and go to the next slide. Do you mind? We're just going to take some of this and speak to the Lord. Again, just knowing full well that whatever I said has no power to change the human heart. Only when we come before the Lord. I actually just want to take the response time to practice one aspect of what she talked about. Um, and that is when, you know, sometimes when all of us are going through something at any given time, right? More, more often than not. Um, but I want to take the opportunity today for us to pray for one another and just to kind of like, like, you know, friends.